What's Up World. I'm your host, Kareem Rahma, and you're listening to You People, a conversational podcast series sharing real stories from the diverse voices shaping modern America today. We are recording in New York City with Listening Party inside Canal Street Radio. You People is produced by Hyphen Media, an entertainment company focused on telling colorful stories. I'm really excited to introduce you to Philip Eumanns, a 19-year-old black filmmaker who wrote, shot, directed, and edited his first feature-length film, Burning Kane, when he was 17 years old. Philip's movie won the Founders Prize and the prize for Best Cinematography in a U.S. Narrative Feature Film at the 2019 Tribeca Film Festival. Philip is the first African-American director to receive the Founders Prize, and he's also the youngest director to have a film accepted to the Tribeca Film Festival. Burning Cane was recently acquired by Ava DuVernay's Array Releasing for distribution and will soon be in theaters and available on Netflix, too. Do you want to know something crazy, Philip? What's that? When we were thinking about this podcast... When we were thinking about you people, you were literally the first person that we thought of for having on the show. My partner That's insane. read an article and was like, this is hyphen. That's crazy, bro. And now you're here. That's wild. Thank you so much for having me, man. Of course. I mean, it's brilliant what you've done at such a young age. And I think even not thinking about age, it's brilliant what you've done. You seem to have a real vision that you want to see through and you should be proud of your work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, everything that's happened and the, the life that the film has taken on is really kind of beyond me. So, you know, it's all, all blessings, man. All, uh, you know, got no complaints from this side. For know? sure. For sure. So I want to talk about your childhood. You were born and raised in New Orleans in the seventh ward. Mm-hmm. I've only been to New Orleans once. Word. And it wasn't when I was a little kid. It was when I was, I think... 30 and I'm 33 now. Oh, word. So I don't know what it's like growing up in New Orleans. I need you to tell me. Got you. So growing up in New Orleans. So for me, I grew up with my mom and my sister and we, uh, I guess the sort of pillars when I think of like growing up in New Orleans, I'd say we'd be like Mardi Gras going down to like Amelia Street where everybody, literally every kid in the entire city congregated to this one street, you know, where everyone would get really honestly pretty plastered and, and <laughs> and really make out with anybody around each other. And that's pretty much when I think of like New Orleans and Mardi Gras. And really, I was also sort of shaped by a lot of the artists that sort of surrounded me during my time in New Orleans. So I started with art, visual art, when I was in like second grade. And that sort of bridged into theater. And I started getting into, you know, theater and acting there. And from there, I started doing like smaller roles and productions in the city. Then when I went to NOCA, those sort of pillar group of friends who were in maybe musical theater or in visual art. I was in media arts and film, but I think just my sort of palette or group of friends was kind of curated without the intent of being curated. But given that I was just surrounded by artists all the time, I think I just associate the city with that, you know, without even thinking about it. But New Orleans is a hotbed for art and culture and I feel incredibly fortunate to be from there, right. you know what I mean, let alone make art there. So. And so when I was a little kid, I grew up in Minnesota and my childhood was filled with like wiffle ball, and like basketball games and a cul-de-sac mm. and, you know, just like running or it almost felt like the movie Boyhood or something like mm. I was just running around in fields. Yeah. yeah, is, yeah. is that at all like, like New Orleans, New Orleans? Or, or not really? Well, I think my New Orleans is a little bit different because until for the longest time I was just so much of my time I'd spent, you know, playing video games or reading, kind of living a very sort of isolated existence. Inside. Inside, a very, very inside, isolated situation until really high school around that time when I started really sort of branching out, started playing sports until I realized I didn't really love sports. But, you know, it's interesting. I think I towards the end of high school, that was a conversation that a lot of us would have thinking about like, oh, there are open jazz clubs any night in the city, we can walk and really take in this entire sort of, like I said, cultural hotbed that Mm -hmm. New Orleans is. But that was something that a lot of us, especially me and my friends, didn't really think about until towards the end. Right. And we thought, you know, maybe we didn't really take full advantage of growing up here, growing up with so much. Right. You know, but I think that the grass is always greener on the other side. And then you see, you know, looking back, you know, there maybe were some things about growing up that I didn't really appreciate as much as I do now. You know, for the longest of my life, it's so interesting, man, how I thought that I had to be in New York or L.A. to really make moves and really make work that 
would get out to the world. But it's so interesting how really falling back on my roots, falling back on what I knew, what I was comfortable in, what I could sort of give an authentic perspective to, and things that sort of existed within my home ecosystem is really what opened up everything else. Right. You know, not having to go here and make work that maybe I didn't really align with or really didn't speak to anything I really knew, you know, not having to do that and really sort of falling back into what I know really opened up the world in a weird way. Right. And you, you know? said you grew up in a household with your with your mom and your sister. Yeah, yeah. What's your mom like? My mom is a very, very, very strong woman. She is, you know, fiercely independent, I think. I get a lot of my isolation sort of streaks from her, mm-hmm. you know, but my mother is also a very religious woman, but she's, it's so interesting. She's incredibly progressive socially and in mm-hmm. all those respects, but she is also very, very grounded within the sort of, that sort of Protestant sphere that she grew up in, you know, from low country, South Carolina, that's where she's from. And that's where a lot of my family still lives in South Carolina, along the South Carolina, Georgia border. But my mom is my mom is pretty kick ass, and she was also a huge supporter of Burning Cane. And it's so interesting the sort of conversations that we would have around Burning Cane because Burning Cane is a film that very clearly shows religious figures in a fallible light, and that was something that I wrestled with with my family and her sometimes, you know. But she also recognized that my intention with the film was not to make a sort of bashful display, more just a sort of humanizing portrait. And mm-hmm. people can take what they want and really sort of, I guess, there was enough sort of free association there and just depicting things as they are that it didn't feel like I was imposing any of my beliefs on it. You know, even though I've separated from the church and I no longer consider myself a Christian or anything therein, I think she recognized and what my family came to recognize was that Burning Cain exists as a work outside of my personal convictions. Right. You know, and I think that's a sort of mature thing for somebody who's lived within that their entire life not speaking mature about me really mature about my family and even my mother to say because when you think about it say if you've been following you know the religious convictions of what you've been taught your entire life and then towards the end of your life you have a kid or somebody younger who's telling you oh maybe what you believe been investing so much time and belief into your entire life is completely you know not to say baloney but you know, maybe it's not grounded in the same sort of truth that you always believed it was. Right. And I think reckoning with that is probably such a difficult thing. So I appreciate the fact that they've been, you know, ultimately I have to live my own life, but I do appreciate the fact that they've been sort of open and recognizing that my intention isn't to bash it, but just to speak my truth and also show the lives of these characters in a humanizing way as I sort of see it, you know. Yeah, I I think generally, you know, people take any sort of consideration or questioning of religion in a deeply personal kind of manner. You know, yeah. I grew up in a, in a pretty religious household myself. Yeah. My mom is still religious. My mom is one of the most religious people I've ever met. And Word. kind of same as your mom, like socially progressive, but, you know, religiously conservative. Yeah. And growing up, I accepted that. And I also lived that. Yeah. And then eventually you start developing your own opinions yeah. and asking your own questions yeah. and becoming your own self. Yeah. You know, did you get a lot of pushback on that from your family when you started to question? Did you question openly? Like, Yeah. And, and I'll say my family is very understanding. Mm-hmm. Like my mom, you know, she takes the questions and answers them mm-hmm. in the best way that she can. And that's yeah. not to say we, we don't, I wouldn't even call them arguments anymore. We get into very spirited conversations, yeah, but they're yeah. not even debates, yeah. you know, just like, Here's what, you know, a lot of what I pose are just questions Mm -hmm. that I think are inaccuracies or are hypocritical kind of positions in religion. Agree. That I just say, that's kind of where I try to pin it down is I'm like, well, how come it says this? And then my mom will say, you know, some answer that's like very pure and and godly. And I can't get mad at her for that. You know what I mean? I can't get mad about it. Yeah, exactly. So, So I just accept it. But with all that being said, there's still a piece of me that's always kind of feeling this weird guilt, right? Because you're just taught something and you're taught that it's right. And then eventually you say, well, I don't really agree with that anymore. But then there's this pang of guilt that occurs every once in a while. And and for me, it's like easy stuff. It's like, I'll be eating a slice of, sorry, mom, pepperoni pizza. Mm -hmm. And I'll be like, "Mm, this is really good. But growing up Muslim, I never ate pork in my life. But now I'll eat it and I'll just be like, Mm, so good, but like, damn, it's also so bad. Yeah. You know? uh, yo, I experienced something like that kind of a similar in like when I was like in seventh grade. That's when, so before that, I had, I had already started my sort of like 
you know, kind of unfiltered sort of like bashing of the church. <laughs> like where I would say like to my mother, like, you know, why do you take me here? Why blah, blah, when I'm constantly telling you about the things that I disagree with, yada, yada, yada. And once I, I had a sort of strike of fear where I was like, yo, I'm going to go to hell if I continue to be this outspoken with how much I disagree with everything. And no matter if I disagree with it, maybe I'm supposed to sort of align. And then once that happened, I was praying every day, multiple times a day, just out of fear, right. like straight up. Like it, it had nothing to do with the fact that I actually believed in anything that I was being preached. It was really just the fear of literally burning in the fiery pits of hell when I die. But then I realized that that way of life, living that way is, is a sort of, it's just a prison, you know? And I say it all the time, like a prison of belief, legitimately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like really feeling like, it's also just straight up living in fear, you know? And living in fear is such a tiring situation. And it didn't last very long of me being like, so I went from pretty much an outspoken rebel to what I was being sort of, I guess, taught and raised around. And then I went to being sort of incredibly devout and just as fundamental or as conservative as they were for a few, honestly, maybe six, seven months. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, you know, I can't keep going like this. Like, I feel like I'm literally, I'm sacrificing something. I'm living in abject fear of what is going to happen. And that's no way to live. And I think I recognize that. And then I went back into being sort of comfortable not necessarily being as outspoken and as rude sometimes. Right. Because though I thought differently and though I thought that my beliefs were in the right, I was at first very, very, very sort of insensitive to the fact that the rest of my family has been believing in this and following this for their entire lives. Well, I think, I think eventually that rebellious, I guess, you know, preteen rebellion dissolves and it just becomes more of like adult acceptance yeah. slash you know, like just ignoring it yeah, and you yeah, just yeah, get yeah, on yeah, with yeah, life yeah, and yeah, you're not going to change someone. Like, I'm just not going to change my mom's opinion. Yeah. You know, even if what she says makes no sense, she's believed it for too long Yeah, and I'm cool with it. Yeah. She can believe that as long as she's not hurting anyone, as long as she's not hurting me, as long as she's still a great mom, Fact. it's not my problem Fact. anymore, Fact. you know? Fact. And so as a child, sounds like you were very inquisitive, very in your head, yeah. you know, thinking a lot, creating a lot oh, of art projects, yeah. like questioning, <laughs> questioning morality at, at an early age. Was your father around? Mm -mm. No, no, no. My father wasn't around. I actually found out who my father was like right before Tribeca, actually. Wow. Yeah. And was that like a major kind of like, was that mind blowing? Not really. You know, it was, uh, my mother did an incredible job of raising us. You know, it, it wasn't really anything that I really questioned that much. Still haven't met him, but I know who he is. Wow. But it's nothing that me and my sister ever really thought that much about because my mother honestly did an amazing job in terms of filling both of those roles. Right. And so, you know, in that case, it kind of is what it is. But, but no, it's interesting because when I was younger, I used to feel kind of, I think a little more sorry for myself and be like, oh, well, why isn't X, Y, and Z around? What's up with this? But in truth, after like a few months, I realized, yo, I'm just feeling sorry for myself. I'm not missing anything. Right. And my mother, honestly, in truth, and major props to her, she's given her entire life to my sister and I. So there's never really been a real question outside of those slight moments of me being eight years old, being like, ah, blah, blah. I'm just trying to find someone to be mad at. <laughs> right. But, and that, that's just early rebellion. Yeah, you know, it doesn't exactly. really mean much. It's just hard to express those feelings yeah, 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 yeah. in a nuanced way yeah. when you don't have the vocabulary or even the emotional capacity to do so other than rage yeah. or anger, you know, which are very base emotions. You know, growing up in New Orleans, it's a very black city. Yeah. Right. And so that's, you know, seems like it lent itself to being a good childhood to have people that looked like you around yeah, you. Yeah, definitely. Right? Like you weren't like growing up in, in like an Ohio suburb. No, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. And I definitely think sort of, you know, I grew up in a very proud black family and I think that it was very, very clear for my sister and I that our identity was something to be proud of you know, from the moment that we were pretty much spawned. And I think that was sort of reinforced also with like later on in high school, I got to know like the New Orleans Panthers and a lot of them. And I think they sort of really sort of cemented that sort of unapologetic Afrocentrism that really became a cornerstone of my artistic mm -hmm. identity. Mm -hmm. I think it was always, like I said, always sort of supported and a prideful thing with amongst my family, but meeting them and really getting to know them and seeing how fearless they were 
with their blackness was also just so dope to see. I think that definitely did sort of shape my perspective and really sort of cement how confident I am to be a black man today. Right. Of course. Mm -hmm. And so, so you're going through, you know, elementary school, middle school, life is pretty good. Making little movies, making visual art, yeah, you know, just practicing expressing yourself with your friends. And then you go to NOCA, which is the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. Now, is that like a high school that anyone can go to? Or did you decide that you wanted to go to that specific school? Well, I decided that I wanted to go to that school before high school. Like that was... It was like right before high school, I was like, yo, I actually want to go to NOCA instead of Ben Franklin. Which was the other high school. The other high school. But Got my it. mother was like, yo, Ben Franklin, if you look at like stats on paper, Franklin is supposedly like the best academic high school in Louisiana just based on test scores. You know what I mean? And I don't really, to say what's true or not, you know what I mean? Whether test scores are really an indicator of, you know, the real performance, you know, student to student, I don't know. But I think that was a rationale for my mother to be like, uh-uh, no, you're going to this <laughs> academic high school. Oh, so then, you had to go to Ben So I had to go to Ben Franklin, but then my the beginning of my sophomore year, it's when I got to split half day and then go to NOCA. And then when I went to NOCA, and NOCA really to me is what defines my high school experience because that's when I got to work on films and concentrate on films really for the rest of the days, for every day during the week. And so I would leave Ben Franklin at 11.30, have like an hour and 45 minutes to either finish my homework, hang with homies, get prepped for the rest of NOCA, and then drive down to NOCA, which was near the French Quarter in the Ninth Ward. And then from there, I was just focusing on film. Really, it was pretty much like an intensive sort of film school, technical-driven film school also for the rest of the day throughout high school. Right. And uh, there was an amazing professor there named Isaac Webb, who has been so formative for me, just in, not only in film, but just in life. Right. Still consider him one of my best friends. And so NOCA definitely defines my high school experience for me and, and also in the people that I really are, became close with and I'm still close with today. So many of them were the sort of artists that surrounded me within that sort of NOCA ecosystem. So no, NOCA is insane. And also the, just the arts legacy of that place, you know, and the artists that have come out of there, you know, Anthony Mackie, Wendell Pierce, John Batiste, Harry Connick Jr., you know, all the Marcelluses. It's just a storied history of like heavy arts and NOCA is an intensive technical space. So like, honestly, shouts out to NOCA. Definitely like that was incredibly formative for my early career and technical basis for filmmaking in general. But I also want to shout out to Philip Eumanns because hey. when I was in middle school, I was literally not thinking, I had nothing in my brain. <laughs> like, I'm not even exaggerating. There was just zero things. The whole, like, it was like, you know, it was like, who am I going to try to kiss and fail? Yeah. And when, <laughs> like, where's the best place to, like, find cigarette butts oh, yeah, to yeah, smoke? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there was yeah. no consideration of, like, you know, I think I might explore filmmaking. Yeah, like, yeah. where did you find that in yourself as a, you know, I'll even push it to, like, freshman year of high school. Yeah. To say to your mom, hey, mom. I'm thinking about getting into filmmaking. Like, where did that come from? Well, How did that happen? It started when I was like, honestly, back in middle school, I started doing like theater and and then from theater, it I started doing and auditioning some local roles and productions that came into the city. As like and an my, actor. As like an actor. And my mother was like very, very adamant about me acting. She hated the idea of being a stage mom, taking me to audition, blah, 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 blah. Like she was just not, and there were some roles that I was going to audition for. Where she was like, I don't know about this, blah, blah, blah. You need to stay in school, school, mm -hmm. school. And then in sort of shooting, so really my sort of acting vessel got very centralized and localized to only doing productions that would come into the city every yeah. once in a while. Because some of my friends that I've met through acting would like their parents would take them out to L.A. for like pilot season right. or like do all those kind of things. But I stayed in New Orleans. And so there was this one film that came down to shoot called American Hero. I had this really small role about some kid who sets his school on fire and smokes a joint with Stephen Dorff. And so I'm there and I met the director, Stephen Love, and I saw the whole mechanism of the set really on a bigger level than I had ever seen. This was when I was maybe like 13, early 14. Wow. Before that, before that film, I had made like a couple smaller little shorts where they were like really kind of god awful, like shot on, I don't even remember what it was shot on, but just an early, 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 early DSLR. Right. Early, like not T3i hadn't even, maybe T3i was out, but I hadn't had access yeah. to it. It was whatever I found that my mother used to shoot some of our like home videos. Right. On. But it was digital. Uh, it yeah. was like, it might, I don't know if it was digital because there were tapes. Oh, you know? cool. But 
It was like the camera. It was like kind of like it might have been a Sony Handycam. Not sure. But I shot some stuff before American Hero. Never finished it. Never did anything. After that, I was like, yo, I want to I wanna be on the other side of the camera. I want to really do this. Also felt like being on the other side of the camera, it felt like you had so much more power over your destiny. Right. Over what came from what you made. Because as an actor, and I have to give major props to actors, there's a lot of rejection that comes from being an actor. For sure. You know, that I think you really have to have a lot of tough skin. And I've never had the toughest skin if I'm being completely transparent, you right. know? And I felt like really in a way I could really have an active conversation about the stuff that was affecting my life and the things that were more personal to me if I really focused on the things behind the camera. Right. And you talk about like maybe finding cigarette butts or finding out what girl to kiss. I was thinking about all that kind of stuff too. <laughs> but I also think I just sort of fell in love with filmmaking in a way that I never thought I would. I really became obsessed with the entire process and I still enjoy the entire process. That's why none of it really ever feels like work. Yeah. You know? And yeah, that's really interesting because for me, like I always loved movies, you know, I used to, I just watched so many movies when I was a kid, mm -hmm. but I never once had the thought that I could make them. Mm. And I don't know if, if it's because it was different times back then where like, you know, the representation really didn't exist at all, yeah. at all, yeah. you know, and it just never occurred to me that like, this is a viable option for a career, yeah. you know? So I think that's something to consider, you know, I was, I've told the story on the podcast before, but. I was watching the new Spider-Man movie, which is the animated one called Into the Spider-Verse. Mm -hmm. And in that movie, Spider-Man is like a young mixed ethnic kid. Right. He's like half Latino, half black. Mm -hmm. And I was watching it on an airplane. I started to tear up mm -hmm. because I was like, damn, like this brown Spider-Man. Yeah. I was like, man, if I was a kid, you know, it would be a lot different. You I feel think. like that would have shaped, it would have helped motivate you to feel like, yo, the world really is open. Yeah. It doesn't need to be like, and I never, you never think about it, you know, yeah. because like, I also read this really funny quote about like how, you know, people of color have been watching white movies and white shows for a long time and we've enjoyed them. Yeah. I like Seinfeld. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I love Seinfeld. And I like Fargo. <laughs> right, you know? You know? Like, and it doesn't yeah. make a difference. And then I had that realization that like, oh, it can be the other way around as well. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. there's not even a, you don't even have to think about race, yeah. actually. I mean, sometimes you do and sometimes you don't, but like, it doesn't always have to be about race. It could just be a great story. Right. And the people represented in it are brown or black or any other shade. Yeah, yeah. And I just always thought that those were two interesting moments in my life where I was like, anyone can throw their hat in the ring and tell yeah. stories colorful stories right. you know so I, re I read this great interview in no film school and this quote really stuck with me so this is philip on on work i suppose i've been making short films since i was in eighth grade they were very bad in the beginning but i kept making more and more i was getting better learning about things that didn't work i learned through a lot of trial and error and put all of my money into shorts growing up that's why i didn't travel that much i would put all of my money into the shorts that and gas for my car, yeah, yeah, which which I think is such a great kind of like you know just description of what seems like a really good strong work ethic, right? right? Like I mean, when I was young, I was saving up to buy a car, mm -hmm. and then I was saving up to just get like the new dope like fat farm shirt. <laughs> you were saving up to make shorts, yeah, 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 which is really dope. And I saw that you know to get Burning Cane started, you did an Indiegogo, yeah, and you also saved up all of your money from working at Morning Call Coffee Stand, yeah, which is a benet yeah, place in New yeah. Orleans. No, now it's defunct now. Now it's Cafe Du Monde now. Oh. Got bought out. Yep. Franchises are I'm pushing all the little ones out. Man. Wow. It's insane. Wow. The space is still there, but it's literally, it was morning call coffee stand. And then I left like for a year, come back. It's Cafe Dumont. And you're not into that. I mean, you I'm, love Dumont, but I mean, Cafe Dumont is like a staple of it, but right. it's also like, it's the same way that like when people go to LA, they're like, oh, I got to hit up in and out and they don't even think about fat burger. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. It's taken over. Yeah, exactly. What did working at Morning Call teach you? Working at Morning Call was a super humbling experience. Like what actually pushed me to work at Morning Call was actually not the film, though while I was working at Morning Call is when I decided I wanted to make the film or that the film was going to be expanded to the feature and this is where I need to ramp up shifts, I need to blah, blah, blah. I actually got into a car wreck. Oh, uh, shit. And my mother was like, yo, you need to get a job. Like, you need to get <laughs> out of here. I'm not about to help you. Our insurance just got raised. You have to account for that. You right. Because before it was low enough where I had the safe driver discount and my mom just really... 
accounted for me having to put gas in the car, work to, you know, pay for those kind of things. But then after that, she was like, uh-uh, like, go to work. Like, right. And so I went to morning call because I had some friends over there who were like, yo, for a high school job, we make pretty solid cash. And it honestly was. Like, the first day I went in, after working like an eight-hour shift, it was so fast because serving beignets, it's not a ton of money per order, but it's cash only. So orders come in quick, quick, quick. And you'll look back from an hour and have like $100 in tips. And is it mostly tourists? Tourists. Pretty much exclusively. <laughs> so just cash. Yeah, yeah, exclusively. Cash. And then like at nighttime, that's when the locals come in when they're like drunk or high and they'll come in and get some beignets. Right. Like that's pretty much the time. But for the rest of the day, tour buses come in. in right. In. That's a great job. Yeah, I know. It's a great job. And so I got to stock up a ton of cash. And in the months leading up to pre-production, that's what I was pretty much doing. And I threw all my savings into it. We did an Indiegogo, raised a couple thousand there through all of my savings, which was either between like two to two and a half K at the time. And then was working morning calls, stocking that up. When we moved into production, we really didn't have a lot of sort of funds to work with. When I look back at the film in grand scheme, like we had and like I put down a top sheet budget, it was like roughly 60. But at no point did we have anything more than like three or four thousand available to us at a time right it's just that when you look at something in terms of what's been spent from start to finish right and if you consider grants as well right and in-kind services if you take out in-kind and grant it's really closer to something to 30 right below right but we had enough just enough to get us through production because it was such a grassroots situation right you know we had I had all of my best friends working on the project. They weren't banging on my door talking about where my paycheck. They wanted to be there anyway. We were having a blast. Of course. You know Sounds what I'm saying? Like the funnest and, thing you could possibly yeah, do. Yeah, it was so fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then also so many of our locations in Laurel Valley were facilitated through, you know, community contacts, friends. And the guy who was supposed to be my DP, still a friend of mine, Jacob Johnson, who was from Thibodeau nearby Laurel Valley, who helped facilitate a lot of those locations around there that we didn't have to pay for. That's another thing about Louisiana and shooting in the South and having that sort of community air around you is that people are so trusting sometimes. Right. Like there was Shannon Benoit. Shouts out to Shannon. She gave us the keys to her house and she left for a week to go shoot in Helen. The house that you see is Helen's house in the film. Like that's where she lives. And she gave us those keys after having met us a couple days before. And she just handed. She yeah. Just she's said, just like, yeah, fun. yeah. And that, it's insane. That's incredible. Now, like Jake, she had, there were some people, some of Jacob's friends who were like our location managers, but they were just kicking it with us. Like, I don't even think they were there in request to Sharon. It was like more like Jacob wanted, because Jacob couldn't be there. So he was like, let me just have a friend there as a liaison to make sure everything's cool. But it wasn't like there was any sort of strict, stern supervision or anything, you know? And that's, shouts out to her for being so trusting. Without people like that and people giving us that sort of helping hand, this film wouldn't have been possible right. at all. Considering how young we were and how limited the resources we had, you know, how that situation sort of played out. So it just, yeah, yeah it wouldn't happen in New York City. No, no. no. no I spent more on locations in New York City for two days of shooting a short in November than I did during the entire duration <laughs> of making Burning King. That's insane. Yeah. That's insane, but I'm not surprised. No, no, no. And, and so taking a step back, Burning Cane actually started as a short that you're yeah. writing called The Glory. Yeah. Right? And so you're writing The Glory. It's junior year of high school. Mm -hmm. And you show it to a teacher of yours mm -hmm. at NOCA. Mm -hmm. And he tells you, I think this has legs to be a feature. You should yeah. make it a feature. Yeah. And I kept reading in some of these articles that you were like, I became obsessed with that yeah, idea. Yeah, I did. Definitely. <laughs> you know, it seemed like an insane sort of... I remember immediately after him telling me that and us having that conversation, I was like, you know, definitely that's going to happen. <laughs> then I went to my producer, Mose Mayer's house, also one of my best friends. I went to his house. He was sitting by his pool. We were just kicking it. And we just were talking about everything that this was going to take to make happen. We came to the same sort of like eureka moment where we were like, yo, like, no, we're going to do this. Like, we're going to do it. And then after that, it was literally just us sort of meeting every day, hammering in on like steps to steps of how we were going to pull this together. And producing this logistically was, I have to give just major shouts out to Moe's, Ojo, Moe's family, Ojo's family, my family, my mother, everybody who helped me pull this together logistically. Right. Because when it's that independent, that grassroots, of course, as a director and the filmmaker, the person who's really the creative voice that the film is sort of moving through, you have to do a lot of that on hands producing yourself. But it doesn't mean that the people who bought into the project, that you don't need their help every single step of the way. Right. You know, and it came down to everything. Say like in 
where Daniel's house is, Ojo was working at a sort of like a taco truck that would like move around the city. And the guy who ran the taco truck allowed us to shoot in this property that he had in Algiers before his tenants came in. And Ojo worked hard to help facilitate that, help get us in there, clean out the space. Like there was so much stuff that like, I just have to give just major props right. to people who helped me make this. Like it's very true. For sure. And how different was the glory from Burning Cane? Mm, great question. So the glory really focused more than anything on Helen living in isolation. And then Daniel, her son, sort of comes in basically out of nowhere because they have they were estranged at this point. They hadn't really been in direct contact for a long time. And then during that, the short is a sort of like tight meditative piece on her trying to reckon with the man that he's become, why he's here, what he's done, because she knows something must be wrong for him to talk to her, for him to ask for something. Because the only time that she hears from him at this point is when he needs something. And for the past few months, she hadn't heard from him before at all. Mm -hmm. So really, it was about her figuring out who he was, what he had done, coming to her own conclusions, and then acting. In a similar way to how you see it in Burning Cane, it's almost like the short, the glory, is like the last 15 minutes of Burning Cane. Kind of nudged you to make the feature. Mm -hmm. Did you immediately have that idea? Did you know? Like you were like, I already, I know in the back of my mind how to make this a feature or well, was it a process? It was you know? definitely a process, but it was a process that I was just, I didn't, I didn't take any moments to sort of take a bit beat to think. It was more like just going in, moving in. At first, the first draft was just honestly a cold situation where I just went in and was writing stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And then after I pulled back, got feedback on that, it was like, okay, I really need to plot this out. I really need to make an entire sort of landscape of where right. the story is and where I want it to be. And do you use any like technical kind of like formats to do that? Like, do you use note cards? Do you just, you know, write pieces of paper on the well, well, so I, I think for me, I just created like a Google doc and did like a bullet point thing where it will like, I would create like a sort of one liner of major sort of scenarios and motions for characters where I would say, all right, we first bullet open on Helen down by the riverbank hunting for ducks. You know what I mean? Blah, 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 blah. And that's another actually a, a change that happened. Initially, Helen was going to be hunting ducks, but I changed that to chickens. There was a couple of different reasons, but also like chickens were, there weren't any banks for her to actually do that nearby <sighs> the location. And that was something that had to sort of be adapted upon integrating the location of the space logistically. And it was, there's sort of domestic brutality to ripping apart a chicken and, right, you know, right. I thought was super interesting, but. Yeah, so I plotted it out pretty much in a Google Doc, bullet for bullet. Then I went back and sort of re-engineered the structure of those first drafts. And then when Wendell came on, it was another one of those scenarios where I went back, looked at the structure and re-engineered it. But the script is such a living document because it, it developed and changed and sort of evolved mm -hmm. throughout every stage of production. And how did you get Wendell? So Wendell, so it was back to Morning Call. I was waiting on a woman named Lula Elsie, And she went to the same high school that Wendell... And I went to, Wendell and I actually went to both of the same high schools, Franklin and Noka. But Lula went to Noka and I was speaking to Miss Elsie, telling her about what I was, you know, doing in my life. She asked me what I wanted to do and I told her I was a filmmaker. I said I was making my first feature that summer. And I told her, I ran through the story of the film, ran through all of the characters of the film and spoke about how really the only character that was left to cast was the pastor. And she immediately, her first reaction was like, what did I think of Wendell Pierce playing the role? And before that, I hadn't thought that Wendell or an actor of his caliber was anything that was even approachable. Right. Because at that point, I had nothing that I'd put out into the world or that I was comfortable with sending or even showcasing. Yeah. So it didn't feel like I had much to fall back on besides this script. Wow. And so she texted him right then and there and said <laughs> like hey yeah you know, one of them, like, no but like no but great pitchman but, but she texted him right then and there and then wendell hit her back and said yeah i give him an email so i got his email then i sent him the script and said hold up do not read it and then i took another week to sort of expand his role nice and then i sent him that draft back and then after I knew he was interested, then it was us trying to figure out the dates, blah, 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 blah. And for actually a minute, we were actually into production. And we didn't know that Wendell was for sure going to be able to do it just because of scheduling. Scheduling. Every date I would throw back at him, he had something else. Because during that time, he was also shooting Jack Ryan. Right. And I knew that it was just going to be difficult to get around it. And there was a point in time where it really straight up did seem like it was going to work out. And then I wrote this note 
I wrote this email essentially pouring my entire heart out saying like, yo, I don't see anybody else in this role, any date, because before it was like, I threw out a date. It didn't work for him. So it was like, yeah, I threw out a date. Didn't work for him. Blah. Next time when I, after I wrote that letter, I was like, yo, tell me when you can do it. (laughs) Tell me whenever this is possible and we will do it. Okay. And then he gave me some dates and I was like, okay, that's it. That's where we're moving. That's unbelievable. Yeah. What a good, I love how like, it almost is like, your life in a weird way is kind of like a movie. It's like, you know, it's like, oh, like, a guy working at the, yeah, yeah. the Benet place in New Orleans meets this woman that yeah. happens to know Wendell Pierce that yeah. texts him on the spot. And then, you you know, it just Yo, like... It's like too, almost too perfect in a way. It's great. Yeah, yeah. It's great. And you should appreciate <laughs> definitely, that. And definitely. So, so you guys make the movie. You start principal photography. Mm-hmm. You make the movie. And this is one of my other favorite stories. And again, it actually worked. It's yeah. just like all these things keep working. Yeah, yeah, and you yeah, cut yeah. a trailer for it and you need to finish the movie. Yeah. That's expensive. Yeah. It takes a lot of work. Yeah. And so you cut this trailer and you reach out to Ben Zitlin, who directed Beasts of the Southern Wild for mentorship and guidance through Instagram. Yeah. yeah you yeah. just send a message yeah. with the trailer. And he gets back to you. Yeah. And I, I have, I have, it's funny. I have done that before. Really? And it has also worked. Where, what, what happened with you? What did you do? <laughs> this is, again, to kind of just show the difference between where my mind was at yeah. and your mind was at. I'm not that old. I'm 33. I would right. definitely do it differently now. But like when I was living in Minneapolis, I love the story. I'm like in Minneapolis and Mark Cuban, who owned the Dallas, Dallas Mavericks. Mavericks, was in Minneapolis to play against the Timberwolves. Word. And he like tweeted out like, yo, just landed in Minneapolis. Like, is there anything to do around here? And I tweet him back. I'm like, yo, I'm at this bar. Come through. He follows me on on Twitter and then DMs me like, what's the address? And I'm like, ha ha ha. Like this guy must be really bored or something. And he's never going to come. Yeah. I tell him where I'm at. I'm at the Bulldog Northeast. And 20 minutes later, he's there. Mark Cuban walks through the door and goes Kareem. And I'm like, wow. Whoa, that's crazy. It actually happened. And then it only gets better and better. Because we literally spent 10 hours together. What? We hung out all night. Are you like homies now? Like- <laughs> I mean, I would, like I said, I was not as as like strategic or I didn't really have a reason. To I get be, you. But it, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, but yeah. like, yeah, I mean, he answers my emails. That's You lit. know, when I email him, he answers my I think he still remembers that night. But like we ended up going to like three different bars, like Sorry. a club. Like it was fun. It That's was crazy. Cool. And, That's crazy. But and people like, I always tell people to do stuff like that. I'm always like, just. Text them, email them. Yeah. Randomly. You know, if it's good enough, like if they're interested, you never know. It's a Hail Mary. Like that's what Hail Marys are for. I also think like in the case of like Wendell, shouts out, he has a great team, but I do think if I hadn't gotten to him directly and if I had got to go through the wall of his team, you know, there was nothing up front that would have made them even probably want to pass that information on to Wendell. Right. I mean, considering that, you know, the, the, I think that's why Wendell connected with the story and the art and the entire thing around that. But I do think that it's and it's also sort of their job to be able to like sort of pull back a lot of those outside requests that don't seem like they could be as fruitful. Of course. But I'm also fortunate. I feel like that I got to get in contact with him directly in your case with like Mark Cuban. <laughs> I'm sure if it had been like someone who was really like sort of representing him, it probably wouldn't have been as It wouldn't easy, have worked. No, it know? wouldn't have happened. So I feel like that's the biggest thing, like finding a way to get to the artist directly and have that conversation with them. I think you'll find a lot more sympathy sometimes than when you have to go around. Of course. That sort of veil. And so Ben like just goes, I love it. Well, so Ben, it was interesting. Like when with Ben, it wasn't even the intention at all of him coming on to be EP or to helping us like that right. in any way. I just wanted to get to know him because he was like, he was the only director I knew that lived in New Orleans locally that was making work at a studio level. Like this right. dude, after Beast was acquired by Fox Searchlight and then they had a first look and got Wendy and put it, went into production with Wendy. And so he was making Wendy also for Fox Searchlight. But Ben is bass lives, loves, lives, breathes New Orleans. Right. So I was like, yo, to get in contact with him and also Glory at Sea and Beast of the Southern Wild are singular works. Like both of them are gorgeous works. Mm -hmm. So I was like, yo, to speak to this man, to get in contact, to just even be able to talk to him would be insane. Right. And I wasn't even sure that was his Instagram because Ben is so (laughs) inactive on Instagram. (laughs) Like he has like two posts. It says like Giants fan 2626. The only thing way that I knew it was him or like had a real sort of inclination that it was him was that it said Court 13 Arts in the description. I knew that Court 13 was his arts collective that really also shout out to Court 13 because they are really trying to create a sort of artistic funnel for New Orleans voices in film. So shout out to them. Found out when he was in 
so I associated Giants fan with Court 13. Hit up. And he's actually a Saints fan. So that's also, <laughs> it's true. Like he doesn't, so hit him up and then he's like, yo, this is sick. And then we met for coffee and then we're just picking his brain. So much of those conversations early on were about me like saying like, what was it like for Beast of the Southern Wild to take like an entire whirlwind and just go around the world and explode in the way that it was. Uh, and he was giving me insight on all that. And me and him were literally talking about life so much more than we were talking about film even. And then I integrated him into the process, sort of asked him for feedback. And after first asking him for feedback on that first long cut, then it was like a, it was a bullet train of him sort of spending nights, days, so much time with me combing through the edit. So spending, nice. You no, know, it's insane. And then I went into where he was editing Wendy with his editor, Afonso Goncalves, got Afonso's notes. And Afonso is like a, literally a world-class editor. Like right. to have him sort of sit down, take the time, give me really sort of beat for beat feedback on it was invaluable, you know? So shouts out to Ben and Afonso, like really taking the time. And because I had, there was no incentive for them outside of the goodness of their hearts straight up to really want to take that time with me and help me with that. And then Ben towards the end of post, and it really sort of elevated the production value of it. Cause honestly, by the end of burning cane, I was like, or towards halfway through the process of post-production process of burning cane. I haven't really said this, but it's true. Webb, Isaac Webb and Ben were really the people that were pushing me to really sort of finish it outright because I was trying to apply for another grant mm -hmm. to start my next feature. So I was like, yo, I could do so much better, blah, blah, right. blah, blah. But then they're like, yo, no, finish this strong. Like right. it's so worth it. You've done so much of this. And it's not that I didn't want to finish Burning Cane. I was just so, at that point in time, I was just so sort of like, I think my mind was so sporadic and saying like, oh, I'm just so excited about this next idea. I was so invested. That's when I started meeting up with those Panthers even more. Right. So I was like, yo, I really just want to do this now. <laughs> but then like, yo, yo, no, it's so worth it for you to finish what you started. There's so much invested in this process. And they sort of had to remind me how much really was invested right. in Burning Cane and what that really meant. And so we buckled in. I got Ben helped me get this grant from Crate, Louisiana that gave me a cash award, an editing space at Second Line Stages in New Orleans. And then final color correction through Photocam and also final deliverables through Photocam that just completely elevated the production value mm -hmm. of the entire film and saved us so much money on the back end. Right. So, you know, Ben has been one of my best friends today. He's uh, one of the sweetest, kindest humans in the world and also so pivotal to Burning Cane being where it is today. I think both of the, all of these people that have helped you along the way, I just want whoever's listening to this to remember to literally help someone for fun. Just because you want to, yeah. you know, it's like so much of what's happening. It just revolves around money all the time, yeah. you know, and I understand like money makes the world go round. Yeah. But if you spot someone that you vibe with, if you see a story that you love, yeah. like take the time, yeah. you know, time is invaluable as, as it's proven with your project. There's no replacement for, you know, having somebody else's words, even encouragement, motivation, mentorship. You know, and we need mentors. We need people who are guiding us along our paths to step in sometimes and tell us and remind us what's yeah, important. Definitely. You know, I had this other weird, like strange question. I don't I don't know if it makes a sense, but like, you know, Moonlight, Barry Jenkins Moonlight was released in 2016. Did that have an impact on the way you told the story of Burning Cane? Did that affect it at all? Or was it, you know, just like you were like, that's a good movie, but it has nothing to do with us. <laughs> I think. I have to say this. It's difficult for me to be able to point to any one filmmaker or film that's directly affected it. Mm -hmm. I think it's honestly and truth, it's probably easier to comment on the influences. When I speak about the filmmakers that I admire and the works that I appreciate, it's probably easier to factor that in and see those influences from an outside perspective, honestly. And I say that because of this. When I made Burning Cane, my intention, especially in shooting it and in writing it, was in no way aligned to any outside works. Mm -hmm. Like it really wasn't anything where I was like, oh, the only thing that I can say is a direct reference to an outside technique or shot that I've seen. You remember that scene where Daniel is like, it's leading into Daniel going to that final sermon where he's drinking and it's like his body is like, <laughs> it's like floating almost. That's a Spike Lee situation. Oh, you know? okay. Where you see, where it looks like he's walking, but he's almost like floating and it's, and he was sitting on a dolly and we were pulling, like, that's the one thing where I could think about. But in terms of the applicable, like, I guess, plan and objective with making Burning Cane and shooting it in that sort of quasi-documentarian style, 
I can't really look at any other directors or works and say that they directly influenced right. how I approached it. Mm -hmm. In all honesty, that being said, Barry Jenkins is a huge influence for me just as an artist and creative and an inspiration. I think his work, Ava's work, D. Rees, you know, you can go down the line. We have really a cohort and group of black filmmakers progressing the black narrative and dissecting different aspects of our culture from a way that we've never seen before. I, I think you know? I, I read another quote from you that I think, you know, validates that exact expression. Yeah. I want to tell honest black stories. I think my artistic identity is pretty firmly established in that. I want to continue to make narrative features. I'm looking for the new honesty in things. I'm looking for the whole picture because I feel like the truth always comes out anyway. I think now is probably the best time for Burning Kane to come out. It does seem like there's a very real resurgence of black voices and we're being heard from different perspectives with stories about us that have never been told before. I think I'm fortunate that I was able to make this now. Yeah. Which I think is exactly what you just said. Yeah, it's literally like pretty much line for line. Yeah. So you make the movie. It's all done. Picture lock, you know, let's go. And you start submitting it. So it actually was kind of difficult for me to start submitting it because I was really towards the end of it so neurotic about every little thing. Then my mother actually called me. It was by the time I had moved into my dorm at NYU. Uh, my mother was like, yo, you got to get rid of it. Like you have to like send it out, you know, because I was just... At this point, if I hadn't sent it out by that sort of like beginning fall deadlines, then I was going to miss another year right. of festival cycling. And it was also a conversation where it was like, if I don't, I just had to sort of step away and recognize that at a certain point, I have to let it, the world sort of take its course and let the peace sort of exist and move forward. It was going to exist. So I submitted it through Film Freeway without a box, you know, same just as really everybody else. And I stepped back and for the months after submitting it out, I tried to forget about it. Because I invested years at that point in making it. Mm -hmm. And whatever the fate of the film was going to be was something that I didn't really want to get so stuck on. Right. Because I just felt like it would just... At first, it was driving me insane. I can't lie. Just of thinking course. like, yo... Refresh, refresh, Yeah, refresh. yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yo, especially because the notification deadlines for these things were so far away. But I was in my psych recitation when I got the email about Tribeca. I think it was like November, December. And I first heard back from Kara Kusumano and the programming department and it just changed everything and for the longest I couldn't say anything about it because it had to be sort of kept secret and under wraps until Tribeca made that announcement but it was like the best kept secret of my entire life you know the fact that the film and the work was appreciated I think it was validating also that I followed my instincts with it and it felt like that was sort of good enough you know yeah so that I think also helped me be more confident in the works that I'm making now yeah but that festival just waiting for festivals just putting your piece out in the world is such a daunting, scary thing. Yeah. And even leading up to the premiere is so sickening sometimes in of the course. best way. Yeah. But it's still like, you know, visceral. What was the first viewing like when you were like in the theater with everyone else? Dude, were you it like, was oh, visceral, visceral. Is this the best bro. feeling in the world? Yeah, it was the best and also the most horrifying thing. <laughs> because like, that's why it's difficult for me to watch the movie now, even I've been completely honest, because I get so, again, neurotic about every little thing, like looking, engaging people's reactions around me to every little thing. Right. It's honestly not that enjoyable of a viewing experience <laughs> for me. I'm just being honest. No, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not. I think it's just, I totally understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, that I have this problem where everything I make. Yeah. I hate yeah, about yeah, three yeah. months afterwards. Yeah, I'm yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, so bad. So bad. Yeah, I can't yeah, believe yeah. I did that. Yeah, I can't exactly. believe I put that out. You know, but you have to live with it. It's the best it can be Facts. at the moment. That's all you can do. You can't do anything else. I mean, Definitely. you know, you know that you gave it everything that you had. Definitely. There was nothing more to give, you yeah. know. So the movie gets into Tribeca and at the same time, you're at NYU. And how amazing was it to have your entire family with you at Tribeca? It was cool. It was awesome to have them there. I was a little afraid about what they would think about the film because at that point they hadn't really been debriefed. Oh, and they that. hadn't seen it. No, they hadn't seen it. And they also didn't know, like, they knew vaguely, they knew that I was making it. I mean, we would they would get little updates here and there along the process of making it, but it was never a, uh, a thing. I think the biggest thing that I was just kind of not afraid of, not honestly just nervous about was just how their reaction would be to hearing me I think seeing the film is one thing and then hearing me talk about the film is a completely different thing because then when you get the full context of me and like how I've personally aligned with religion mm -hmm. and all of those sort of things then I think it maybe can sort of change the lens of viewing it and I was I think the Q&A even more than the film was what I was worried about because I wasn't going to just filter myself 
is because they were there. Right. But I also was just sort of like a little bit on edge of them hearing me just straight up tell a whole bunch of people that I don't believe this stuff anymore and blah, 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 blah. But they were very opening. I think they were a lot more open-minded than I wanted to give them credit for. So that was also, I think, a sort of breath of fresh air. But the moment itself of having them there and having that moment at Tribeca and premiering, it's like, yeah, it was it was dope. Had they ever been to New York before? Some of them hadn't. And a lot, some of the talent hadn't been to New York. But we have, we actually have a couple family members that live in the Bronx. Oh, okay, and my dope. mom used to visit New York when she was like growing up in the 60s. She would come for summers. Mm-hmm. But some of the rest of my family had never been here. So that was cool for them too. That's amazing. So tell me about the new projects in the works. Are, are you able to talk about any of them? Yeah, or are yeah, they top yeah. secret? Oh, uh, no. So exciting stuff. So be on the lookout for, so in long term, that Panther project is my next narrative feature. But that's something that's really more like, given a feature it's like a years mm-hmm. years of endeavors mm-hmm. but most recently got a i have a music video coming out with an artist named leslie odom jr i have a music video coming out with a dope band out of south la called inner wave i made a short film of a french-speaking film about a family of west african immigrants living in harlem called nairobi and it was made with solange Knowles's creative agency saint Huron. and it's going to be sort of first showcased at the getty center in la at the end of november and then I got a documentary, a short documentary in the works and post-production with John Batiste that sort of chronicled his time at the Village Vanguard, coming from the Colbert show straight to the Vanguard for a week of time that was really, really fun to shoot. Also, shouts out to John, one of the kindest, sweetest, most talented dudes in existence. Incredible. And then uh, I'm trying to think about what else, what else? There's one other thing that I really want to say. I can say tell you off record. But I can't really say it now <laughs> just because it's not official. I don't no, want to like you. jinx it, yeah, yeah. but it's, I'm really excited about it. It has to do more in that sort of like video installation museum type space. Cool. But yeah, I also really want to get into that lane more because in between making narrative works throughout high school, I was making video installations and I got the chance to shoot with this incredible English video installation artist named John Acumfra. He shot a piece down in New Orleans called Precarity that sort of chronicled the sort of schizophrenic life of jazz legend Buddy Bolden and meeting him and, and sort of seeing that whole space of how much, how fluid the video installation world can be. And really it's just creating visual poetry. I thought that was always super dope. And then meeting John sort of cemented that I also wanted that to be a part of my arsenal and really wanted to dig into that as well. And so I started making a ton more of those installations. And so those are going to be showcasing soon. And like I said, I'll tell you <laughs> off the thing. Dope. Um, well, is there anything else you want to talk about? Yeah, uh, got any questions for me? Yeah, <laughs> I just want to talk about yeah, the new yeah, Kanye yeah. album. Oh, yo, I haven't, I haven't heard, <laughs> I haven't heard it yet, but I was gonna listen to it later on today. What have you listened to it? I have listened to it. What are your thoughts on it? I need a couple more listens. Your I'm generally. It's like every time I think Kanye does something bad, I revisit it. And I'm like, damn, it was so good. Yeah. Or it's just immediately good. Yeah. So I don't like at first blush, I was like, it's okay. Yeah. But I think it needs some more listens. I haven't heard it yet. I have no, it's so difficult for me to even push. Uh, what did you think of that last sort of lineup of like the Pusha T release, the Tiana Taylor release and that like seven tracks string? I didn't like, I feel like the life of Pablo was the last thing for me where really? I'm like, where I'm like greatness. Did you like yay? No, I mean, okay. There's a difference between liked and loved. Like oh, I, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I always like, yeah, I like Daytona. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like Ye. Yeah. <laughs> I like Kid Seacoast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I love The Life of Pablo. I love Jesus. Yeah. I love, what's the other one? My Beautiful Dark Toast. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I love- Did you like I love 808? Oh, 808's is my favorite one. Really? Yeah. That's your favorite one? I know. One? Unpopular opinion, but also that's like the heartbreak album of like the century. Yeah. Like I that. Can like see that. For me, there's like standout tracks from 808, like amazing. And 808's a mood. It's it a is. full mood. But it's also like, uh, I feel like- 808s to me was like the first big like pillar of like yo Kanye really just cemented this auto tune sound. Oh for like, sure. To me, I think like you look at like college dropout, late registration. From there, after late registration, was it my beautiful dark twisted fantasy? Yeah. Like those to me are pillar albums. And then I loved Life of Pablo. Honestly, didn't really love 808s just because it was just a different sound that I'm right. accustomed to. I think I think I'm just. But never what about Jesus? Jesus, I actually loved Jesus. Love Jesus. Yeah, yeah, like Jesus starting, especially on site. It's so good. Oh, give <laughs> it's 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 amazing. Yeah, yeah. I saw Jesus live. That was the one time I've actually seen Kanye live. It was an interesting performance, but the crowd in the at the time it was in New Orleans Arena. Oh, they were just not live for him at all. You oh, could it was tell not he hype. Didn't, no, yeah, he oh, was like, sad. yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, no, I the more I listen to Kanye, the more I believe that he is a true album artist, right? Yeah. Like I look forward to the albums. Yeah. And I think with these shorter albums, I'm not as in his world. Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. my beautiful dark twisted fantasy and all of them are a different world. He's yeah. almost like a he's like a cinematic musician. Yeah. Like that's how I like to think of it. It's like his albums are like movies and yeah, yeah, yeah. and they provide like an entire world. And I feel like the short ones are just or they're just kind of scatterbrained, you know. But that's why I want to keep listening to Jesus King because I think that there is probably something I'm missing and it requires more than one listen. Yeah, you know? I get that. What movie do you watch the most? What movie do I watch the most? Probably There Will Be Blood. It's also my favorite movie. <laughs> also Kanye's favorite. Really? <laughs> Kanye watched There Will. He tweeted out, I had a film critic on the show, Kristen Yunsu Kim, and she said that he literally tweeted out like, I've watched There Will Be Blood nine times this year. Like Kanye. Yeah, tweeted. I've watched There Will Be Blood so many <laughs> times. I think it's probably one of the best films of the 21st century. For sure. I, but I also think it. there's definitely, I have to shake the American centric lens oftentimes of like viewing films because there are a ton of dope films. Right. Did you see Parasite yet? I have not seen Parasite. I'm going to go tomorrow. Word. I need to see, uh, what do I need to see? Marriage Story. Oh yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, personally love Adam Driver. Yeah. I think he brings like a real kind of yeah. something to the screen that's just like something that a lot of people don't have. What about you? What movie do you watch the most? I'm not really a repeat watcher. Mm. I, I try to, because I feel like I haven't watched enough. Yeah. So like I'm trying to oh, hit Oh, to those. the point where you <laughs> feel like, yo, like I can't watch anything else or I'm just missing like, out. Yeah. Like no, like I hate saying, I hate admitting stuff like this on the podcast, but like I just watched Rosemary's Baby. Word. It's been on the list for for a long time. fifteen yeah, years. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But so like, I feel bad watching movies more than once because my mm, list is just too long. I get that. I just have too many things I gotta Do watch. I get that. Yo, sure. but like, I did notice that. I remember I was reading something about you. And you love Badlands. Yeah, I love. I love Bad Terrence Lands. Malick. Period. Like, I'm really excited for the new one. He has another one coming out. When? When is it coming out? I don't remember, but it's like a Nazi Germany war drama. It's kind of a return to form of Badlands. It's before his. Knight of Cups, like he did Knight of Cups, he yeah, did Tree yeah. of Life, he did all those like very like yeah. you know weird obscure kind yeah. of like visual so things. What do you think of Tree of Life? I liked it. I didn't understand it at the yeah. time when I saw it, but I like it looking it's back beautiful. at it. Yeah, especially no, those, of course. Especially those moments where it feels sort of like I don't know a little retrospective and nostalgic yeah. when you were going back to the fifties, you know. But, but the new one is more narrative. It right. returns to narrative form, form in yeah. a way that he hasn't. So I'm super excited to see that. Right. Looks very dope. He's a master. He also is one of those filmmakers, honestly, like Ben, that takes their time right. with their works. It yeah. really isn't. And Kubrick was the same way. And I think that that's a lost art. Yeah. You know, it's true like, as hell. You don't need to have a hundred movies on Netflix. You know, who else? So there's a couple other people that like have made like nine things and they're just all good. Yeah. That's kind of I feel the same way in terms of like, and that's also something that I'm trying to really think about in terms of that next film. Just really sort of taking my time with it, trying to take time with development, trying to take time and really giving the entire development process of like rewrites and workshopping the script and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, the time that it needs, you know, because I do want to maintain the sort of singular sort of voice and moving forward as a director, you know, and I hate to use the word auteur because that can come loaded in a whole ton of different ways that mm -hmm. I don't really want to latch on to because the film is such a collaborative medium and mm -hmm. involves so many, the work of so many people. But I do want to really focus on the material that I personally write and direct. And if I can continue to also shoot and edit, you know, that'd be great too. You know, I think that's also something that needs to be considered project to project and about what's in the best interest of a project. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I mean, I'm inspired by directors like that, like Ben and like Malik, who really, really sort of take their time and allow their work to move through that sort of singular voice and process. So, you know, that's the goal. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thank you for well, having me. I appreciate me. it. Keep up with Philip on Instagram at Philip M. Humans and Twitter at Philip Humans. Also, make sure to visit his website at philiphumans.com. If you like this show, the one you're listening to right now, please follow us on Instagram at youpeople.podcast and subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. If you like me, your host, follow at Kareem on Instagram. And if you're interested in hearing more colorful stories, follow us at hyphen media. This episode of You People is presented in partnership with Listening Party. Follow the crew on Instagram at Listening Party Presents and at Canal Street Market. Also, make sure to watch Burning Cane. See you next time. Hey. Peace.
Are you listening to this episode on Himalaya? If you are, congratulations, because you're already using the best new podcast app out there. If you're not, you're missing out. Whether you're a podcaster or a fan, Himalaya is designed with you in mind and has a ton of cool features like curated, shareable playlists, dark mode, and personalized recommendations to help you discover your next favorite show. And the best part is, it's super easy to use. So do yourself a favor, go to the App Store, download Himalaya, and be sure to follow you people once you're there.